Fully automated luxury communism. People don't talk about that anymore. I wonder what happened to it. Yeah, we just gave up on it, I guess. You no, know, you know what happened? The, the pandemic came and then everybody lost the will to live. So nobody has any hope for anything anymore. That's probably fair, yeah. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to be talking about a TV show. I mean, it's so tough because in today's day and age, things move so goddamn quickly that people probably already forgot about it. But you shouldn't have forgotten about it. Or if you did forget about it, maybe it's because you were seven. I was just going to say that, bro. (laughs) We're talking about Severance, the TV show that for a moment at least captured everybody's attention in my sphere. And uh, yeah, it's got some really interesting things to discuss do you have as a quick little teaser do you have anything in particular that you're looking forward to addressing yeah i mean i mean just the very idea of you know the kind of classic philosophical question of what constitutes or personhood or what individuates persons there's a certain thesis happening in the show that i think is really interesting and like a classic uh or who's the person who who made the whole like there are some pieces of art that don't represent philosophical ideas but they actually do them right they like ideate <laughs> i feel like this mm. is one of those you know like the, there's actual philosophical thesis kind of in the background being argued for in this show that i think is really interesting having to do with conscious personhood and of course there's lots of interesting ethical questions about you know were a technology like sephirin's possible um what would be responsible and irresponsible ways to use it those are super interesting questions yeah and the aesthetic of this show is really fucking cool it is super cool and i can't wait to talk about the super cool um so yeah so we'll talk about that in our main segment uh do we have any housekeeping stuff that we got to get out of the way yeah we do want to mention that if you want to support us in more tangible ways you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to goodies like bonus episodes our discord channel and the ability to vote on our next patron sponsored episode and we're going to be doing a patron sponsored episode in our next episode we mentioned previously that we had a tie in our last vote tally and uh, we did an episode last time on the book of job and then the next one's going to be on whether you can be an ethical CEO slash bougie class trader. And we haven't decided yet exactly what we're going to do about it, but whatever we do, we're going to do that next. And so, yeah, go to patreon.com slash Isles at Dawn if you want to participate in the next version of that. Hell to the yeah. But before we get going, we do want to give a shout out to our sponsor of this week's episode, Mubi. Listen, we actually, we aren't just talking about Mubi because they pay us. For being sponsors, we freaking love Mubi. I love Mubi. Um, I watch it all the time, particularly when I have a night off. When I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna watch something weird, or I'm gonna watch a handful of weird short things. I queue up the Mubi and uh, I let it rock. Um, so Mubi is an online streaming platform where films are all perfectly curated by the maestros over at Mubi, who just have impeccable taste about cinema, um, both. Uh, regionally within the United States in terms of like classics, but also all around the world 
they could be like festival darlings, things that won it like Cannes or Venice or things that just have completely flown under the radar from independent filmmakers that you've probably never heard of or from some of the greats that maybe you haven't heard of but you should have heard of. And um, of course, Movie is giving all of our listeners a 30-day free trial if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn. That's movie.com slash owls at dawn. But Troy, um, is there anything in particular in the movie library at the moment that has caught your eye that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I'm really excited to watch Jeff Nichols' Mud again. Um, <laughs> Mud came out in 2012, won a bunch of awards, including some stuff at Cannes, I remember. And Jeff Nichols is one of my favorite filmmakers. You may have seen a couple of his other films like Take Shelter, which I think is my favorite film of his with Michael Shannon. Um, Midnight Special, which is also a film that I really love. Um, Loving, mm. a couple years after that. Everything he's done, I think, has has been wonderful. Um, but Mud came out in 2012, stars Matthew McConaughey in, I mean, maybe my favorite role from Matthew McConaughey, one of the top ones, at least. Hmm. And he's a fugitive uh, in Mississippi in the South, and he ends up hooking up with uh, a couple of kids that help him in his quest. And I don't really want to say more than that because you got to watch the film. But if you like any of those Jeff Nichols films, um, you know that it's uh, going to be... I feel like Nichols is great at, at navigating like crowd pleasing, uh, like lose yourself in the flow kind of films that also can challenge you both intellectually and sort of cinematographically. Um, he's one of the masters of that I feel like. Uh, and so mud, I think is that's a paradigm example of that kind of film. Hmm, cool. Yeah. In my library, so they have different regional libraries, depending on where you are in the world. I'm obviously in Australia and they're doing this can takeover, which is really cool because Cannes Film Festival um, is going on at the moment. And um, they've just got all kinds of amazing options that you can check out. I mean, one of my favorite films of recent memory, Troy and I have talked about it many times on the podcast that I probably will never, ever have to see it again, but it has left such, left such an impact on me is The Hunt, Thomas Vinterberg, oh my God. Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that Mads Mikkelsen won um, the can for best actor this year for this film. How could he um, not also have? The yeah. <laughs> below, for, what's, what's up? How could he not have? Yeah. I know, man. I know. It's so good. It's so it's so good. And I'm always like I recommend it to people. And then I'm like, but do I want to actually like sit down and watch it? You know, again, like if I if I recommend it, you know, or do I even like is it something that you recommend because you're like, dude, you have to see because it's good. It's like it's like Lars von Trier films, you know, like I'm like, oh, yeah, Antichrist. Do I recommend it? Like, I don't know if I recommend <laughs> it, but like but like you got You got to see it, maybe, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, it, yeah, I, I feel but, like uh, the Hunt is a, a great example of how um, you can have a negative experience that you not only don't regret, but actually view as something important, like an important constituent of your life. But also, you're probably never going to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then, um, so now it's not just Vinterberg. They've got a couple films from Michael Haneke on there, The White Ribbon and Amour. Um, they've got uh, 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut. They've got uh, The General by Buster Keaton. So they've got all kinds of stuff. And, and this is basically just an idea of what they're always providing. So um, go check out movie.com slash owls at dawn and you'll get a 30 day free trial. That's movie.com slash owls at dawn or click the link down below. All right, man, let's get into this. Yeah. You ready? I'm ready. I'm it's feeling, time for the shitty minute. I'm feeling shitty. This is, this is where one of, are you feeling it? <laughs> are you feeling shitty? This is one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off. So Troy, What's got you by the gonads? Yeah, I tried to think about how to not talk about this this week. Um, 
but I couldn't think of anything else. Nothing else was. Is made. this the restaurant debate that's been going on online about like socialists and restaurants and shit like that? Is are you wading into that? What is debate? that about? No. Oh God, don't. I don't care. <laughs> I, I literally, I don't even know. I think someone was like there won't be restaurants and socialism because who's going to provide the labor. And then you had like a bunch of people that were like talking about like labor in a post capitalist world. And then like our restaurants just like bougie, bougie, like bougie conditions that if you're a bad socialist, that you just want the comforts of bourgeois society. And so you're not really a socialist. If you like love restaurants and I don't know, I don't know where the conversation devolved into I literally, I literally feel cursed for having even been made aware of it. So, <laughs> well, I will say that anybody who makes that argument uh, is foolish. But I do understand if someone's only had experience with the American um, phenomenon of restaurants, then I would understand why they would think that that is the case because that's a pretty terrible experience for the vast majority of cases. <laughs> Yeah. Although I will say this, I watched, I watched a film. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm hijacking your, (laughs) I watched a film. I watched a film recently. It was a French film and I don't even remember what it was called right now. It's called like, like taste or food or flavor. One of those words, like a a culinary related (laughs) uh, word. Right. And, um, and it was about the first, (laughs) it was about the first restaurant in France that was like became a thing like on the eve, like right as the, um, the, the, the angry sentiments were building for the French revolution. And they kind of like tried to make some argument that, um, that the restaurant, as we kind of like came to understand it actually created more empowerment, uh, like contra the, the, uh, aristocracy you might say. Right. Cause rather before you had chefs that were um, only able to give delicious food and crafted food to like barons and things like that. But with the establishment of the first restaurant, you get like a shift towards um, kind of like more equitable exposure to um, the culinary craft of cooking. So anyway, it was just something interesting to think about. Oh, I like that. I hadn't thought about that. A nice little history of the restaurant would be a fun little documentary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm sorry. Shitty minute. It doesn't have to do with restaurants. What does it have to do with? <laughs> I almost kind of want to talk more about restaurants now because mine's depressing. But <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I, I don't want to talk directly about the uh, the shooting in Texas because that's depressing and every, all the whole discourse around mm. it is obviously terrible. Um, but there was one sort of side phenomenon um, that was tangential to, to that whole uh, dialogue that had to do with um, certain, certain individuals that everyone knows, uh, uh, including like Matt Iglesias talking about how, you know, yes, the U S has many problems. Here is a glaring example of that. No one should sort of minimize it, but, um, the U S is still, uh, one of the best places on earth to live. And right now is the best time on earth to live. And that's evidenced by the fact that everybody still wants to come here. Um, and so we shouldn't lose sight of that fact and, and that like hopelessness, um, sort of take over and despair, you know, make us like irrationally think that we live in like the worst time or whatever. And the reason why it's my shitty minute is because I think there's something like minimally, but importantly true about that sentiment, but that it gets that, that minimally true thing so wrong that I think it's just awful. 
And so I wanted to rant about that for a second, see what you think. And I think as I, as I always think this comes from like disease utilitarian thinking as everything does, that's bad does. Um, so I get that the reaction to terrible events, like what happened in Texas this last week, um, it elicits, especially in social media, just, you know, a firestorm of, you know, yelling and screaming and, um, or whatever the social media correlative, correlative actions are to yelling and screaming, posting, um, and shit posting. And that's, you know, to be expected that happens when like, you know, a bad movie comes out or whatever, but this is obviously different because people are sort of justified or seemingly justified in being upset that this horrible thing has happened and it's obviously very easily prevent or not easily, but it's preventable. Um, the onion headline of, you know, the only country in the world where this regularly happens says that nothing can be done about it is, you know, posted every time one of these school shootings happens for good reason, because it's true. Um, and so I get that certain people in the sort of technocrat sphere want to come out and say like, let's tamper down, let's not freak out because that kind of despair and hopelessness can be, um, can be mimetic, right. Can be contagious. And that kind of thing hmm. can often lead to a sense of feeling disempowered that leads to people not wanting to be politically active, um, in as minimal way as voting and as maximal way as, you know, just wanting to not go outside. Um, and so I get that that's a worry and that's a legitimate worry. Um, and it is, I think in some sense true that I wouldn't want to live in a different place or a different time. Um, that said, a large part of that's because I've been acculturated and socialized in this sphere. Um, and so I'd be very uncomfortable living in a place where I wasn't hmm. acculturated and socialized, as would somebody who's from a very different time and place would probably feel very alienated in our um, current system for a, whole, a host of reasons, including uh, rampant, you know, uh, lottery-based violence. Um, that's neither here nor there. The point simply being people feel hopeless about a lot of things in the social and political sphere right now in America. And I think it's wrong to tell people that, that that hopelessness is irrational or even to insinuate that it is, or even to mm. point out that part of it is, <laughs> even if that may be somewhat true in some minimal way. Um, hopelessness is an appropriate response sometimes. It's not something we should have dominate our sort of mental lives and it shouldn't certainly shouldn't dominate our thinking about what we ought to do about things. Um, but when people feel hopeless, it's not always irrational. Maybe sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And hopefully when we get through that, hmm. um, that feeling of hopelessness, we can get out the other end of it and, and try to figure out ways to make it so that that feeling doesn't come back. But just because hopelessness can be destructive doesn't mean that it's irrational, right? There are lots of, uh, emotional states we can be in that, are uh, potentially and even largely destructive that are not necessarily irrational. They're for good reasons. And there's probably some role that hopelessness plays in good politics. I don't think it's the dominant one. Obviously, it can't be the dominant one. I'm not like a fucking nihilist, right? Um, but I think there's, there's, we should take seriously that people feel hopeless about a lot of things. Not to reinforce it, not to make it the dominant feeling that we have about um, society and about politics or the, for the future or anything like that. I don't want to be a doomer, right? Uh, but we have mm. to be able to find some median point between fully embracing hopelessness and being a doomer and sort of technocratically dismissing it as a sort of symptom of high expectations, which is sort of the insinuation, right? 
the only reason we feel hopeless about these things is because we have such high expectations because of our great lives. Right. And so if you just realize mm. that you wouldn't feel as hopeless, you know, these things are kind of random, probably not going to affect you all that much in the end. And so you can kind of move on with your day. And that's like, that's the disease utilitarian thinking, right? It's all about probability and risk assessment when it comes down to it. It's like, no, this, we have a fucking diseased culture in society, right? And it's metastasizing. Um, and these are some, these events are symptoms of that. And people who feel hopeless are realizing that fact and seeing like a society decay quickly. And especially so at the level of, um, producing subjects who feel completely hopeless, who embrace the hopelessness and then sometimes engage in rampant violence. And then a system that's completely unable to utilize its tools to do anything about that, where the incentives are so misaligned that nothing will be done and pretty much everyone knows nothing will be done. And any hints that it will be done are rightfully recognized as just sort of waiting out the outrage meter until it dies down and then, you know, moving on to the next thing. And the appropriate response to that is to feel a little bit hopeless. Like hopelessness is a recognition that something is, is dastardly like awry in the system. So that's a rant. Maybe that does nothing for anybody, but I just want to say, mm. if you're feeling a bit hopeless, I feel a bit hopeless too. And I don't want to feel that mm. way. I think it's bad to feel that way, but it's not necessarily wrong, at least for a time. Do you think there's like a point that we can identify at which hopelessness becomes pathological or becomes, you know, um, something worthy of critique? And what is that? What is that point? Yeah, I mean, I have to think about it more, but my my sort of intuition is that um, hopelessness does in some sense, is in some sense relative to something that you value, right? Like you can't be hopeless if right. you're a true nihilist, right? It's like the classic, you know, the Lebowski, like who's the fucking nihilist here, right? It's not fair. Who's the fucking nihilist? Um, if you're hopeless, mm. it's because there's something of value that's not being realized, right? And so if you kind of keep that perspective, then hopelessness can be a transitory phenomenon that maybe even helps motivate you. It recognizes something bad that's happening and maybe it can motivate you towards um, whatever it takes to, you know, to fix that thing and realize that value thing, that sort of value. Um, but of course, hopelessness is also a recognition that in some sense that can't happen, at least at the time or at the place or because of other, um, other fixtures in the scenario, right? Um, you wouldn't be hopeless if you could just fix it right now. Like, you know, um, like getting a flat tire, you don't get hopeless at that. Uh, unless there are no mm. tires in the world, <laughs> then maybe you're hopeless. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I'm wondering, cause it sounds like you're, you're saying that, that the, the, the kind of like mass sense of hopelessness attests to something qualitatively other than this critique against hopelessness understands, right? Like they're only understanding something or only understanding things from the perspective of utility or um, something that can be aggregated in some sort of model or something like that. And you're like, no, actually, this is something that's like qualitatively different, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you respond so to just, hopelessness by saying, don't worry, your uh, utility maximization will still, your preference satisfaction will still be greater than anybody else in history. That's missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I wonder, is there a sense in which 
they're also right that there's actually like a way to level this critique from the perspective of utility that that hopelessness in a society where um, pleasure seeking and utility maximization is endemic because it has has become like inherent. Um, is there a sense in which there is also a sort of like bemoaning of expected utility? And so hopelessness under these determinant conditions manifests largely under a sort of utility rubric. However, at the same time, there's another dimension that is folded into that that is not eliminated, that is this qualitative other, right? And so that they like in that like they're informing one another, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, are you saying like here's what I'm what I'm kind of taking from that? Like uh feeling bad is not good. But right now we should feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Like you should feel bad yeah. and you shouldn't be like, man, I should really feel good right now. This sucks. No, it sucks. You should feel yeah. bad. Like not forever, but right now you should feel bad. Like contentment would be the wrong, the wrong attitude to have right now. Something would be very yeah. wrong if you're like, yeah, you know what? It's all right. <laughs> like it's just not that bad. Yeah. I saw some fucking, I saw some some paper, I think, God, was it Jason Smith? God, I can't remember who it was that shared it. Anyway, someone shared an article that some dude wrote um, in New York about like how, how yeah, school shootings suck, but they're extremely rare sort of thing. And the argument was like, hey, what we need is we need to not be hysterical, right, about this. And I, I was thinking, I was like, okay, like, like, let's not be hysterical. It's extremely rare that you have mass shootings in a school. And I was like, even if that's the case, right? And it was something to the to the to the order of there's like a handful a year, like half a dozen mass school shootings a year, right? Um, which says nothing to the fact of how mass shootings more generally are a part of a similar phenomenological experience of um that, that is that is producing a shared fear, right? So I, I think that already abstracts away from it, things too much. But secondly, um, and then his argument was, is we shouldn't be doing these like, um, uh, what are they called? The active shooter drills? Is that what they're called in schools yeah. um, in America? He's like, we shouldn't be doing this because we're actually just kind of like fabricating um, we're like fabricating trauma by causing them to think about this all the time. I mean, I agree with that part of it. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, no, like definitely. But the thing that was interesting is to be like, it's rare. Therefore, you know, we should kind of take a deep breath. Um, it was interesting. I was like, you know what else was rare? Like uh, a terror, a quote unquote <laughs> terrorist attack. Yeah. Is very rare, but it literally we had one attack in our country, and it shaped an entire world, the whole world, upside down order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now, now we could then say, yeah, that was also an overreaction, and it was right. It absolutely was. But the point is, is that you can't just be like because something is rare, therefore you cannot and you ought not just mobilize insane amounts of resources towards it. And I know that's not what he was necessarily saying, but I just felt like the framing of it kind of misunderstands how it is that activities that are rare can have tremendous effects if the 
if the event is potent enough to involve enough people and to draw enough attention and therefore to kind of like draw enough resources to deal with it, right? And I don't know that just being like, hey, it's rare, cool your jets a little bit is the right approach, you know, even if they're obviously even like, I don't know anything. I haven't been in the United States in, you know, like, I mean, not that I haven't been there, but I haven't been in school in the United States in a very long time. And I haven't been around the U.S. education system um, especially at like high school and below um, and even longer. So I don't really know much about what's going on with like active shooter drills, but that does not sound like a good thing, obviously. But anyway, I don't know. I just thought the framing of it was a little bit, mm, I don't know. I just didn't like the framing of it so much. You know? Yeah. What's well, so funny about that. Now, I haven't read the article, so I can't say too much, but who, who's being hysterical? <laughs> like literally nothing's being done about it. Like if we, we flip the whole world upside down because of 9-11, right? Um, but like nothing is done about school shootings, like nothing happens. So like, there's nobody being hysterical and the sense of actually, like maybe there's emotional hysteria or whatever, that there's not even, not really, I don't think not anywhere near that's out of bounds or something given, you know, the, uh, how terrible and, and, and awful the situation is, but like, obviously there's no like reaction. There's no public, you know, movement towards any massive change that could be, um, have like knockoff effects that are that are bad or anything um so yeah and then also uh, it just seems obvious to me that if you think if you think that the reaction like the emotional reaction that we should have towards a terrible thing ought to be directly correlated to like the amount of badness in this situation or something like that some kind of quantified correlation there that's just obviously wrong (laughs) um there's something yeah like maybe we shouldn't do active shooter drills but not because of the rarity or the likelihood of the thing but because of other reasons because they don't do anything the fact (laughs) yeah yeah they they traumatize kids and don't have any positive effect um yeah that's that's the reason but it's just obvious to me that we react very strongly to a situation like this where if you know, 20 people died in a very different scenario we would also think it's it's terrible maybe tragic whatever um, but react very differently to it because it's a different situation. And when, you know, when, when individuals carry out really monstrous attacks on, on children who have nothing to do with whatever their issue is, right? That's an attack not only on the children and their families, it's an attack on the society. And that's not to say that like, right. oh, I feel as bad as the, as the families do. Of course not. Like that's the, it's the worst thing you could ever have happen to you to have your children, you know, sputtered in this way. Um, and I can't even imagine what, what they must go through, but it is an attack on the whole society. Like that's why someone does something like this. It's to get back at society mm. by doing the thing that will make everybody feel the worst they could possibly feel to make them feel hopeless and despair. Right. Um, and so that's part of why I think people are, are trying, trying to mitigate the hopelessness by saying, don't like give in to what the, to what the killer wants or something like that. Um, but I don't know that spiting the killer really matters in the end. Um, that's a, you know, that's a extremely also, lost person. The fact, the fact that they're, the fact that it is quote unquote rare. And obviously we have to speak relatively to here, but even the fact that it kind of in, in some ways makes it worse, right? It's like people's fear of going into the ocean with a shark attack, right? Which is uh, statistically, not likely, 
but it's the fact that this could be the moment, right? And because you don't see it coming and because you feel hopeless and vulnerable, right? And so because of those things, it kind of heightens the fear of the situation. Like if it was something where you knew, hey, guess what? It's going to be every day. Then it would kind of like allow you to be on guard in a different way, right? Um, but then you'd be in a military society and you'd have like a wholly, a totally different problem. But the point is, is that the rarity of it is it kind of adds, it's like, what do they talk about? Like, like, um, like the, the difference between like, like why people were so scared of terrorist attacks, even though it was like incredibly unlikely that you would ever even be near one or impacted by one in your entire life. Right. But it's like, the reason though, is because it's such a traumatic event and the the scale of the trauma of the event is so terrifying that um, it kind of makes up for the fact that it's so rare that you can't just rationalize it away. There's something similar here. It's like so traumatic. And then here's the thing that's even crazier. I've actually seen numbers where they talk about like in the one in one hundreds that is like that if you're a student now that you have like a, something in the one in one hundreds chance of going through your life of being impacted by a school shooting, Right. It's something along this. So like it isn't that rare even if you think about it. But there's something still about like the dice throw that makes it kind of makes it kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's the dice throw. But it's also I mean just it's this is the effect of, of gun culture generally. The threat always exists, right? And yeah. so the school shootings are different because there's a kind of randomness and a kind of senselessness that, that makes it so that, you know, as far as you're, you're concerned, nothing is, is amiss. And then all of a sudden – the world is is destroyed for you, right? But just gun culture generally means someone could never engage in any act of violence, overt act of violence, and yet always be holding a power over you because you know that they have a gun. And at any mm-hmm. moment, they could decide to end your life, right? Very easily without even having to like look you in the face and, and do it in a way that, you know, most people couldn't actually do. Um, that's why a lot of people carry guns is because they want to have that you know, non-overt, subtle, power over other people. Don't say the wrong fucking thing to me, right? Mm. Don't question me. And then you self-censor and it, it sort of, you know, passively controls your actions in a way that it wouldn't if that weapon didn't exist. Um, so yeah, there's a sort of mm. the overt act of violence may be rare, but the the sort of cultural underpinning is one that causes all these terrible things, right? Um, and yes, school yeah. shootings do it in a different way, but they certainly... Having, yeah, talk to any kid who has to go through all these drills and think about what, how these things might, um, or how they might go down in their own, in their own lives. And it clearly affects them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy when I, so I woke up obviously and, um, it had already happened. So, cause the time difference is so, so stark here. Right. And so, uh, I didn't know about it, but my partner, she was back uh, on the West coast of Australia, which was two hours behind. So she'd had the news before. So I woke up to a text message that was like, Oh, another shooting. And you know, what's crazy, man, for a minute there, I was like, yeah, that's America. Like that was like my, and it's, 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 it's so gross that that was my response. Cause it shouldn't be to the point where you are calloused by it or like that it's normalized, but it really did have that. I, I did have that experience where I saw it. And my initial thought was kind of like, yeah, that's what happens. And that's really fucking shitty, you know? And then and then I opened it up and I started to read about it. And then I think also the nature of this one hit a little bit differently. The fact that it was school children. I don't know why. Maybe it shouldn't. I, I, maybe the fact that I 
um, felt more for like school children than when I just thought it was like just a random attack at like potentially a mall or something like that. Or, um, just, I, I, you know, I didn't know where it was, right. I just knew that it was a shooting. I didn't know that it was a school shooting either, you know, but then the fact that it was a school shooting, it kind of added different layers and I don't know. And then I got to think about it and then it kind of just washed over me. But the fact that I had that initial response, um, it's pretty fucked up, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's appropriate. It doesn't mean that it would have been better if it had been people at a grocery store or somewhere else. Right. Um, but it's uniquely bad and it, and it elicits a unique feeling of hopelessness. And that's, I think on purpose, like that's someone would target completely yeah. innocent children for that reason, um, to make people feel that way and to get revenge on, on society in a certain way. So yeah, I, I think that hmm. we should feel pretty uniquely terrible about this situation. Yeah. 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 So, all right. Well, our palate has been um, appropriately cleansed. I think Yeah, so much hey, for going internet, tangential and not being depressing. Bad takes. <laughs> what did you say, bro? I missed so it. much for going tangential and, and not being as depressing. That was the plan, but that didn't happen. I know. I know. Well, if the internet would just stop having bad takes, then we wouldn't have to, you know, spend so much time thinking through it. So just stop, stop having bad takes, you know? Um, speaking of bad takes, did you see any bad takes about the TV show that we're going to be talking about in our main segment, Severance? I'm not sure. If, I haven't read any of the um, any of the takes, I don't think. I think I, I watched it after it aired, so I didn't get the takes in real time, and I haven't really gone back to them. Have there been some bad takes? I didn't see any bad takes. I just saw interesting takes. I, I think here's the thing. The first thing I will say about Severance Um it's very rare that you get something that is fresh in this day and age that is also like for popular public consumption, you know? Yeah. Um, but there, this felt really fresh to me. I think from the opening, from the opening, it didn't, right? Like at the very first moment, like you're still into it, but you're like, oh, you don't really, it, for me, it wasn't until I got into the office, that green office and the weird symmetrical layout that I was like, oh, there's something interesting going on here. And yeah, of course, it had a little bit of like a retro vibe and there's um, some really like interesting and purposeful use of colors, I would say. Mm -hmm. But um, that's when it really started to hit me that I was like, oh, there's something, at least from a design perspective, aesthetically interesting. And then as the story started to unfold a little bit more, I was like, you know what's interesting is I don't think it creates this like really easy – like I was trying to think of it from – from like a lefty perspective, right? I was trying to think like what would be like the Jacobin take on this, right? <laughs> and I don't think that it easily admits of like a simple like ah labor exploitation. This is what the this is a metaphor for how it is at work where you just become part of the machine and your consciousness goes away. Like like yeah, like maybe, but there's something there was something kind of uniquely fresh that made me feel like that this film wasn't just simply like a representation of political debates going on. You know what I mean? Like it felt like something productive and creative in its own right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that element is definitely there of sort of exaggerating how uh, alienation um, is realized in like modern or contemporary American work life. But that's clearly it's not reductive in that way. It's not just like, yeah. an, like an allegory for that. It's about a lot of other stuff too. Yeah. 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 And I did read an interview with the, um, the creator of the show. I can't remember their name right now, but he was like, yeah, he was like, um, 
He was like, yeah, I, I was basically just working these fucking horrible grunt jobs when I first moved to L.A. And so this is kind of about his experience in that like mindless rote routine, you know? Yeah, that's certainly how it could feel. And I think that I mean, one question I eventually want to get to is um, if technology like this existed, how could we not fall into exactly this scenario? Um, it actually was like the most horrifying thing for me to think about. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Cause I think it's kind of a, maybe like a, a Daniel Mall type, type question. Um, okay, go ahead. Where do you, yeah. Where do you want to start? Um, so maybe we should just, uh, tell people that obviously this is going to be spoiler filled for severance. So if you haven't watched it, you should definitely go and watch it first. Or if you don't care about spoilers, that's fine too. Um, it's not a super, it didn't start as a super plot heavy show necessarily as much as sci-fi usually is, but then it, it gets pretty plot directed in the end. I think that's fair to say. Um, mm. So yeah, if you don't want some of that stuff spoiled, uh, we may talk about it, but I do think some of the philosophical stuff is really interesting in the film. I mean, just for people who maybe don't know or need to be uh, reminded the basic conceit of the, of the series is that there's a technology that exists, which allows people to be severed. And that means that there's a sense in which you can switch between two different streams of consciousness. Um, and, the two streams don't intersect at all such that uh, the sort of autobiographical memories are completely separate, right? And hmm. what's really interesting about that is, you know, this is kind of hinting towards a classic philosophical question in what's called the personal identity literature. Uh, if you, Maybe we should have read Derek Parfit's personal identity paper if we really wanted to get serious about that, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, and a lot of the questions that are delved into there are going back to like John Locke and Thomas Reed and some of the original discussions of personal identity um, is how do you differentiate or individuate uh, psychological uh, beings or persons, right? Um, how do you know when you have one or two or three of them? And the obvious kind of heuristic that we use for figuring that out is by bodies, right? Because that's empirical. Like there's one body there, so there's one psychological being there, right? If there are two bodies, then mm. there are two psychological beings, right? Or maybe at most, because there might be a body that's dead or something. Um, and the question here is, well, wait a minute, we could come up with a kind of thought experiment where imagine this technology existed, there would very clearly be two psychological beings or more with one body. So maybe we can't individuate persons or psychological beings just by bodies, mm. something else that's not necessarily directly empirical, uh, empirical uh, needs to be sort of countenanced to determine how many psychological beings you have there. And I feel like there's lots of thought, thought experiments that try to motivate that kind of thinking from like Locke and Parfit and others. But this show, like it makes it really um, clear that that's the case, right? Uh, it's, I mean, how do you not think that there are two persons in Adam Scott's body or using Adam Scott's body or whatever? There very clearly are, right? I mean, does that, that feel as clear to you that like here is, you know, sort of narrative or whatever evidence that this is the case? It's, it's extremely intuitive. Do you think that this can be extended? Like obviously with severance, there's a clear break between these two psychological experiencers. Yeah. Right. Do you think that we could extend this out and say that this is obviously an explicit model 
but that we can actually then start to explore the possibility that in life, if you are like, you know how like um, Du Bois kind of talks about the idea of double consciousness. Yeah. Right. Or or like, um, you know, the idea that like, you know, uh, when you're in this situation, you think in this way. And when you're in that situation, like, is there a sense in which that this is leading towards a sort of like Walt Whitman type of we are multitudes um, and that that we actually are these complexes of possible regimes, you know, and that it could be, you know, five, 10, 50, 100, except that they're not so neatly demarcated, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the exact question that I have, right, is, you know, the the two Adam Scotts, the Innie and the Audi, right? Um, yeah. They don't have access to each other's autobiographical memory, like to their uh, perspectival experiences, right? But they do mm-hmm. have access to um, the body or the same body. So like if Adam Scott's character is any has some really traumatic experience, like when he sees uh, Heli trying to kill herself, right? And then he goes down the elevator, like Audi, Adam Scott wakes up and he feels awful, <laughs> but doesn't know why, right? Mm-hmm. And I really love how they showed like um, him trying to navigate. Oh my god, I feel so awful, but I don't know why. And that just has these horrible ripple effects for the rest of his life. Like he's his Audi, even though he's not directly experiencing the horrible stuff that's happening in the office, is like clearly falling apart mentally, but has no idea why. So they share the body in an important way, right? And they share some like mm. propositional memory, some semantic memory. Like they know some facts about each other, right? And they know some, a lot of the same, they have, obviously have access to like their linguistic um, And they probably like prefer the same flavors of food and shit like that, right? <laughs> to, to at least a strong degree, yeah, right? So they share lots of things, just not the autobiographical first-person perspective sort of memories, right? So that seems really important. Um, even though they share all these other things. And so, yeah, it got me to wondering, like, if you, if you don't individuate persons by their bodies or by a lot of these other psychological things, but the autobiographical memory has to have continuity, right? Would it be appropriate to start talking about personhood being more of like a spectrum, um, of continuity than a strict binary, right? So the, the sort of severance thought experiment is like a really stark, like you said, there's a direct split between them, right? They have no access to each mm. other's autobiographical memory. Um, now, we obviously, at least now, can't do that technologically. But there is a sense in which we, um, given different sort of social environments, um, we occupy different social environments and then sort of maybe access to our memories or access to different parts of our, our, our psychological being uh, get closed off or get sort of put off to the side or we're not supposed to access them because they're you know not, not looked upon well or whatever, not affirmed. Um, mm. And that's the kind of double consciousness kind of thing that Du Bois talks about, right? And so maybe that's like a similar kind of disunity. It's not the stark one that happens in severance, but it's like a, a somewhat minimal version of that. And there's a kind of disunity that comes from that, right? It's a kind of, mm. uh, and not, not always, right? Like you can code switch, in a way that doesn't feel alienating, right? But there's cl- clearly a kind of like forced code switching that is alienating right. uh, and coercive, and we don't like it. And that's probably because that kind of disunity of our inner psychological being feels like 
becoming a different person in a way that we don't affirm. Um, and yeah, maybe this mm. is like a really extreme version of that. And I hadn't really thought about that before, but it makes me think that that like provides some like wisdom for thinking about why it's so bad when we're sort of coerced or forced into living a different sort of set of psychological experiences. So then would the, the, the moral pursuit be a sort of pursuit of like a deeper integration of our psychic capacities or the, our possible psychic experiencers? Would that be like the healthiest way? And, and the reason I ask is, so I've been experiencing something interesting lately and I was just talking about it with my partner the other night that like, so I am finishing up this really intense research project, right? And um, I'm up against the deadline. And so because of that, I'm pulling some really long hours. And I even had like uh, a week where my partner and the dog is was away. And so for a week, all I did was fucking immerse myself, right? But there's a, a, a real sense in which when I am so focused in the kind of intellectual and high theoretical pursuits that it actually fundamentally alters my embodied experience in such a way that it doesn't just like it doesn't just it doesn't just like um like get me more motivated you know it's not like i like find a flow state or something like that it it literally changes how i feel in the world and it literally then changes how I think about the world. And even to the point where like my interactions with others become changed. And in like in like spiritual terms, we could think of it as like I'm I'm just focusing on like my head chakra, right? Um, to the neglect of like my root chakra. But but I think there's something interesting in that because like the root chakra is tied to materiality, which is down in like, you know, the, the your perineum area, like the base of your spine, right? And it's like tied to materiality. So the reason that that these these practices talk about like breathing down into that is because it's grounding you down into the earth, right? And there's a power in that. And the integration of these chakras is where you don't neglect one zone, if you will, of energy for the sake of another, right? And so it's like, it's almost like my experience is like, I've been all up in my head chakra, especially for the last six weeks. And in particularly that week when I was just totally like, I'm in fucking 12 hour a day research mode. And, um, and it was great in the sense that I was enjoying it, but it also is only like a partial experience of the things that I as Austin typically enjoy. So like I wasn't working out. I haven't worked out in six weeks. Which, if you know me, you know that that probably frustrates me in a way. And it does. And I don't feel as good. Like yesterday, I had to go do something um, for another work uh, thing. And like I fucking tweaked my neck. Just fucking existing, you know, <laughs> which doesn't usually happen to me. So um, there's a sense in which it's like my, 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 my conscious embodied physical experience shifts between these polarities – depending on the practices that I'm habitually, intensely, habitually engaging in. And if it's, um, and if it's, and, and, and I'm, I'm never good. I've never been good at balance. Like I've never been good at being like, I'm gonna, um, wake up and I'm gonna do meditation and then I'm gonna work. And then I'm also gonna engage in like some really interesting speculative thought. And then I'm gonna go to the gym and have like a really rich physical activity, um, after that. And then like, no. And then it, for me, it's like, 
If I'm in fucking nerd mode, I'm in fucking nerd mode and I am just going for it. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to spend three months and I'm just going to fucking work out and I'm going to eat healthy shit and I'm going to watch surf videos (laughs) and I'm going to play basketball and oh, uh, yeah, maybe I'll read like an hour or two of some theory stuff. But eh, even even then the it's like the intensity and the potency with which I'm able to digest those texts is different. You know what I mean? So it's almost like I'm, I'm, I've experienced this and I, and I, yeah, Hey, that's what I got. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, well, first I want to ask like, uh, the idea of tweaking your neck just by existing, uh, has anybody coined the term existentially sore? Cause I feel like (laughs) I feel that way sometimes and somebody should coin that term. (laughs) That's good though. Um, but no, I mean, the original question were, uh, was uh, whether or not um, sort of like unity of the person is the is the sort of like value goal there. And that seems like, as you're saying, obviously wrong <laughs> because not only are people different in that terms, like I'm probably someone who's very much more on the side of like strong unity um, and you're very much on the side of not like very sort of fits and starts dynamic, strong dynamics of experience and stuff like that, right? And that's very obviously appropriate for different persons, right? But even I would recognize that it's really important to have sort of transformative experiences. I mean, we we, we got to read Laurie Paul's uh, essay on transformative experiences sometimes. I think it's really rich for talking about some of this stuff. But um, mm-hmm. there's an important fact about transformative experiences that they transform your values. And so it's really hard to make decisions about those experiences before you've had them because your values will change when you have them. So how do you make good decisions about them beforehand? Um, like a paradigm example being like having a kid, right? It changes you in a really important way that you couldn't have predicted beforehand. And so it's hard to make decisions about those things. Um, and that that's an important fact about being a human being, right? And so it seems really important that we do have these sort of uh, big disunifying changes to our psychological selves, right? That's actually something we find very meaningful and that oftentimes is like a thing we reflect on as being really important uh, constituent of our mm. of our experiential lives. So that seems absolutely important. So it, it can't just be that like only unity is good, right? But maybe mm. we can say like this particular kind of disunity is bad. Then that seems to me what's true about what's happening in Severance, right? Is that what's happening to the innies is is incredibly unjust, right? That's just very clear. Um, I think I've heard some people talk about, uh, and like on like podcasts or, or whatever, whether or not it'd be ethical to commit your any to a life of servitude. And I just, I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, it's obviously wrong. Like, how could you watch this and not think that? You, you'd have to go through some real like metaphysical gymnastics to in any way justify this because, oh, you're doing it to yourself and isn't, isn't prudential behavior basically just uh, committing one time slice of yourself to servitude for the sake of a later time slice. That's just like, no, nah, man, that's just wrong. <laughs> um, that seems, is it based on like a property rights argument though, that like you have the right to do with your property as you choose? I mean, you, you could do it that way. For someone who would say like, you can't harm yourself would be kind of a, uh, based on that property-based argument, right? If you can't harm yourself, because you can't harm yourself like consciously. Um, um, but that's obviously wrong, first of all, right? You can't harm yeah. yourself. And uh, even if you 
even if you wanted that, there's, there's so many reasons why that's just off. Um, but that doesn't even factor it in because a, a person over time, like a single numerical person over time, is a single person. And we're talking about a situation where we, I mean, I guess you have to stipulate it, but we don't have one person, we have two. So it's one person committing another person to a life of servitude without their um, choice in the matter, right? So that's just wrong no matter which way you slice it. I guess you have to accept the fact that it's two persons, but that just seems so obvious to me that it is. Hmm. I wonder if there's a way to to make this argument, to do this, where the severing, like, like they kind of make it that it's inevitable that the severing process will yield these diverging conscious structures, right? And that and that it therefore is necessarily bad. I wonder if there's like an argument to be made that that it's only it only ends up being bad because they're enslaved rather than allowed to have like rich lives doing some weird like funky orgy shit or something like that like would it be unethical then like they just like are just full on pleasure seekers or something like obviously that would be like an interesting form of like a i don't know if it's a good form of life but it would be one where at least you're not causing harm or are you causing like <laughs> harm at like a different register yeah Dude. yeah that's where it becomes interesting right like it's it's super on the nose in this one because it's like oh they're just like slaves for a corporation right um but is there a way to think about it in a way where it's like, oh, yeah, but you could sever yourself, but that other that other person isn't engaged in shitty activities, but is engaged in supposedly, like, cool activities? Like, yeah, they can just play fucking video games all day <laughs> and just eat fucking Cheetos, you know? Like, it's just like a it's, – it's, like it's like a human Disneyland, like an adult Disneyland, you know? And it's like just people in there. So it's like it'll – oh, that's the – that's it. So what you do is because you have a really like oppressed Puritan society outside that doesn't let you engage in things, what they've done is they have created a world in which your severed other can go in there and just do whatever the fuck you want. And they just equip it. You can have just all the crazy, like meaningless sex you want, eat all the stupidest fucking food that you want. <laughs> if you want to just play video games for 12 hours, you just play fucking video games for 12 hours. If you want to work out, hey, guess what? We got jungle gyms for you. You can go do that. And then it'd be really interesting to see the impacts of what that would do on the embodied experience of the non-severed self, the Audi, right? Well, I guess they're both severed. So the any versus the Audi, but then how would, cause then you'd wake up and you'd be like, man, I, I must've drank a lot of whiskey last night, but I don't <laughs> understand it, you know? Or like, why, why does my dick feel so raw? You know? Um, and you're like, or like, man, I haven't had yet, you know, like I haven't had any sort of like cravings for anything lately, you know? And it's because, yeah, you've been indulging yourself on the other side. That'd be interesting. Yeah. The, the kind of masochism that comes from giving your any a, a drunken night and then you experiencing the hangover for them. What a giving, what a giving relationship <laughs> that is. Dude. Cause here's the thing. It's really kind of easy to do it this way where it's like, Oh yeah, we're going to exploit people. But what if it was the opposite? Because then the question would be even more complicated. Cause then it's like, Oh, the, like, cause then you start asking like the bigger questions. Like one, why is the society of the Audi structured in the way that it is that it requires the innies, which I guess you still have those questions with with the the current TV show, but then you kind of get like, ah, oh, but yes, but um, they get to pursue things that you know in typical society we would view as being like pleasurable. But is that a good thing? I don't know. To just have a, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there's know. there's a couple important questions. There's many important questions there, but like obviously, what what <laughs> would be the reason to create an any just for good experiences? Like, there's there doesn't seem to be any any like positive addition to the world by having an extra person who gets experiences instead of you instead of you getting them, right? Um, no, it's like a it's like a car, it's like a carnival, you know. It's so that you can transgress. Yeah, it, there, there would have to be an ideological component that that justifies that, right? Um, yeah, which seems uh, true. But then also, it seems to me like that would be that would be importantly wrong to do because that wouldn't be a full life in any important sense to just rave your entire existence <laughs> and then someone else like sweeps it off for you. Um, even if but even isn't if it's this what people do you. anyway? When you when you, when you go on a drug trip and then you just fucking party like crazy for a decade of your life, you're kind of creating a little severed existence, right? You've got like your your awake life and then you got your like party life. It's kind of a little bit like that, you know. And in your and in your indulgent life, you fucking do whatever the fuck it is that you want to do, and then you put on the suit and the tie and you go to work and you abide by the rules of of society and yada yada. Yeah, what, what's you importantly know? different though is that. The, the drunk you, I think it, I think it is um, important to point out that we give names to our drunk selves sometimes because it is kind of like a different person, <laughs> right? Yeah, my, my guy's, his name is Nitro. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. How did I not know that about you? <laughs> yeah, Kier, my, Kier, Kier named me Nitro. So, yeah. yeah. I guess I, I knew you during more of your Puritan days than probably anybody else in your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, Nitro, that's awesome. Is that named after like the American? Oh Gladiator? no, you know who named? Fuck, you know who named me Nitro? It was Michael Burns. That that fits. Yeah, I get that. That was <laughs> that was where it came from, and it was because this commercial that I did way back in the day, uh, and they all got it their hands on it, and they found it, and then they were like, "Fucking Nitro," and then that became <laughs> my my drunk character. Yeah. So but yes, we do. So yeah, we do that um, to designate or to point out the fact that. It's kind of like a different person in, in a certain way, right? But the important difference here between uh, the drunk, uh, separate person, you, and the kind of scenario you're talking about where you have like the, the hedonist any, is that when you're drunk, um, you retain a lot of the stuff from your non-drunk self, but your sober self doesn't retain the drunk you. Right. So it's like the it's kind of. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you you actually persist in an important way through the drunken state, but then you lose stuff when you come out of it. <laughs> so you're more fully you than when you're drunk. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. About you're, not more you're fully. Two people. <laughs> but yeah, you're like, you kind of you kind of transform. You kind of hulkify a little bit. Right. And then you lose it. You're like when you, you go back. You plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I do love this idea of like the, the raver severance. That's that's pretty cool to think about. Um, and it w I do think you're right that it'd have to be an ideological, like quasi-religious thing to justify uh, doing it. It wouldn't make much sense otherwise. I, and I bet you there'd be cool a future season of severance if they explored how like some religious community uses severance in a completely different way than this corporation does. That would be fun. Yeah. It's so interesting. If not, whoever the creators are, you're welcome. Give it. Give us the spinoff. Oh. We'll, we'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, that's I, so right. I, have a quite, I have like an ethical question for you about this. That's that's been bugging me ever since mm -hmm. I watched it. Um, and we've talked nothing about the plot, but that seems appropriate. Uh, so you have this issue of like invisible labor, right? Which is a classic ethical problem of what an invisible labor, like labor that happens that's oh, yeah. not visible to the public, and so we don't think about how 
it's exploitative or oppressive or whatever, right? And that's obviously a thing that um, goes back forever, and it's a problem now of the world. Uh, we're obviously, as long as we can keep things sort of out of the public view, we get pretty comfortable with the idea that some people uh, do extremely exploited work um, that we're okay with because we don't have to do it as long as we just kind of keep that out of view. There's also just social mechanism, mechanisms for making sure that it stays out of view. Because if we had to see it, we'd be disgusted and wouldn't want it to happen anymore. Um, so my question is, given that phenomenon that exists and that it's it's really important to make those things visible so that people are disgusted by them and, and don't want them to exist anymore. Um, if a technology like severance existed, it made me think, man, if we're so willing to just like look past horrible conditions, labor conditions for workers all over the world, as long as it benefits like our bougie first world existence, wouldn't we just obviously use severance for this purpose to like make like double the population and make them all slaves, all the extra slaves, because it would literally be completely out of view. Like that's the point you wouldn't have to know that it's happening or you would know that's happening, but you would never have to see it and you get all the benefits. It seems like it seems like the most like easy way to exploit labor because you're doing it to yourself. That seems justified in a certain way. Um, and you don't have to remember it. So it just goes away. And then you have this horrible scenario where there's half of the world's existence or at least half the people who are severed um, live lives entirely in servitude completely outside of their own control with no autonomy over their lives. Right. And even if they're mm. like mental children, like the characters in the innies and severance are. And so maybe they don't know that their lives are terrible and that they're exploited and that they're oppressed. That's almost worse because <laughs> they're kept in that mental state in order so, to keep them um, easy to, to ply. Right. Yeah, in, infantilized. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems like, Oh my God, this is what a horrible dystopia this imagines and if this technology existed i don't know how we wouldn't do it <laughs> given i mean yeah that it's actually more efficient and less prone to elicit disgust reactions in us than the current system <laughs> which is so hard to overturn yeah it is so interesting it's almost like you're saying that there's like an inevitability of the system towards this these types of practices you know um yeah I know. I kind of, it was funny. I, I, I almost got the sense where, and I, I don't know if the, the filmmaker or the, the, the creators were trying to, to do this, but I felt like the, um, fervor, which with, with which the defenders of severance were, um, like lobbying for its legality. It kind of reminded me of, um, like the gun lobby in the United States, <laughs> And how you have like this real like, you know, that Charlton Heston out of my cold, dead hands sort of thing where it's like there's this real excitement in this joy for its possibilities. Right. Like like they really just fucking love it. And I feel like uh, what's his name? Keir. Oh, uh, what's the company called? Fuck, I forgot what the company. Called. Oh, shit. Yeah, I forgot. Whatever his last name is. Um the guy that like started it yeah. and then um obviously then you find out that heli is like the granddaughter of, yeah. uh, of the founder of the company or whatever but um 
but so like whatever whatever this company is called like they're just like these really fucking like they're rich and they're powerful and they love it and they can pull the strings and like nothing you can do um can change it right and i kind of i kind of for some reason i was just like yeah these are just fucking lobbyists just like I don't know. I've been watching Veep a little bit lately too, so I feel like I understand. I understand what's going on behind uh, behind the doors um, in in politics in Washington now. Um, but no, so it, it kind of like makes you think that um, that there's like this real enjoyment that would charge the movement, so that it would be like an unstoppable force that would like spread across the world. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I, I was. It, it it makes so much sense that it would. Yeah, I mean, think about the worst the worst like uh, transitory experiences you can have. Like maybe childbirth would be one, right? As far as pain's concerned. I mean, would you really mm. blame anybody for severing childbirth? Like, obviously, some people wouldn't mm. because they'd want to experience that. It's a bonding, you know, experience, and it's really important and all that. But would you really blame somebody? Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe you would, but you also kind of understand, right? Like you could sell it. Yeah. And, and, and you could sell it to someone that's like, man, I fucking hate my job. Cool. I got this crazy procedure for you. Check this out. You don't ever have to worry about it again. Yeah. I mean, I hope that we wouldn't, but like we're weak. <laughs> It'd be really, if it's really easy to do and you know, there weren't these, you know, obviously in the, in the show, there's these um, knockoff effects that are terrible. So there's that aspect to it. But you know, if the technology is closely or monitored and, and somewhat perfected, yeah, I, I can't imagine people wouldn't do it. And that's just horrible to think about because you're making, you're basically creating a person to experience childbirth and then die. That's <laughs> like the worst thing in the world you could possibly imagine. I have another, I have another layer to add to this. So each of the, the, the severed consciousnesses lives in kind of like a perpetual state of existence and they never get to turn off. Right. So like, but like, wait, wait, the Audi sleeps, right? Yeah, Audi sleep, but Innies don't. So the Audi gets fucked though, because eight hours of their life gets taken away from sleep. So yeah, but sleep is great. Yeah, sleep is great. <laughs> so, but then their existence, but then their 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 existence is essentially from like let's say six p.m. when they get off work to uh, ten eleven o'clock, they go to sleep, they wake up at whatever six seven o'clock, whatever their thing is. So they can get to work again by eight, nine o'clock. Like their existence, that, that existence also sucks, right? Like, what do you do? Like, you don't, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like. You get weekends. Yeah, there's something. Oh yeah, I guess you get weekends. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get weekends. That's right. It gives new That's meaning right. to the so phrase you, living for the weekend. Yeah. I was just going to say that it is living for the weekend. Yeah. So you get weekends. Yeah, but your weeks kind of suck, you know, because they're just really short. You only get a handful of hours. And even then it's like, but the good thing is, I guess, technically from the Audi's perspective is you're not, you're not carrying over the stress of the work. So you would, you would be fully quote unquote living in that time that you have, right? Or in the case of Adam Scott's character, just fully in misery for the totality of your existence. Yeah, right? yeah. One of the things so of the show is that that wouldn't actually happen. You'd carry it over bodily, at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I'm just wondering. You know, we're thinking a lot about the any side, but also what about how it has impact on the Audi world, right? And on the Audi consciousness. Like, there's something there as well that that could be explored. Yeah, I mean, it's a really. I mean, it's kind of 
on the surface and, and obvious, but lots of work that we do in the contemporary world is super alienating. That's why you'd want it to be severed in the first place. And this wouldn't actually solve that problem because you'd just be removing part of your the conscious experience, right? Not actually giving you mm. meaningful work, which is the thing you actually want. What you want is not no work. What you want is meaningful work, <laughs> right? And this is just um, mm. giving you no work rather than actually giving you meaningful work. So, oh yeah, I was thinking about like, you know, you and me, we couldn't sever because like there's not a, a split between our work and non-work lives. There's a there's strong continuity <laughs> between them, right? So... And that's why I think we yeah. both love the kind of stuff that we do is because there's this strong integration between work and non-work. It doesn't mean it's perfect or non-alienating or anything, but um, the fact it couldn't be severed for that reason. And that's probably what anybody wants. And they only get severed because they <laughs> think they're getting somewhat closer to that goal and probably not. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I – yeah, I wonder. Like just as an abstract thought experiment, I don't think I would like the idea of having – that type of, of severed existence, right? Where you do totally just cut yourself off from it. Cause here's the thing is obviously this is a very bougie thing for me to say, but like my work activities, the fact that they do translate over into my non-work activities are kind of interesting. Like even if it's not research related stuff, yeah. even if it's like, you know, production related stuff, like I have, I have things that take place in my work day or in my work activities that translate across into my non-work life that are interesting, that teach me things that I learn, that I grow from, you know, um, skills that I'm learning or, you know, whatever it is that, that might have some sort of interesting way of informing my my Audi experience, you know? Yeah, that's that's super important uh, to us. And like all yeah. work should to some degree be that way, right? And we should automate the rest of it. <laughs> we don't need innies. We need robots. That's it, man. Fully automated luxury communism is what we've been <laughs> talking about. People don't talk about that anymore. I wonder what happened to it. It kind of just ran out of steam, I think. Yeah, we just gave up on it, I guess. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I, no, you know what happened? The, the pandemic came and then everybody lost the will to live. So nobody has any hope for anything anymore. That's probably fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I have, I have a couple of questions for you about stuff that happened in the show that are about down that I, I think would, I want to get your, your like uh, reaction to. Okay. Okay. So first of all, what did you think about the fact that uh, Adam Scott's sister or his uh adam scott's brother-in-law he writes that self-help book right like the best you or yeah. whatever, you being you or whatever that is um and then that becomes the best you, you it's the best i think it's the best you you are is that what it is <laughs> that's good um meticulously titled and then it becomes like the the new testament of the innies right yeah 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 how did you feel about that <laughs> Well, the thing is, I thought it was funny because he's obviously in the Audi world. He's he's mocked a little bit by definitely by Adam Scott. Right. Yeah. Um, and then but I actually really enjoyed that. It was like um, because there is something about empowerment in it. Right. Which is kind of like the cheesy liberal, you know, like, do you go get him kind of shit that that we can mock. But. In a in a in a place of servitude where there's total disempowerment and you don't have any sense of autonomy, 
I think it's kind of interesting to see how a sort of like liberal mantra, we might say, um, might might have some kind of potency from within those conditions. You know what I mean? And I think it's interesting because it's super easy, especially if you're a lefty or if you're like Marx adjacent or socialist adjacent, you're going to be like, ah, liberalism, you know, you stick up your nose at it. But you have to remember that the bourgeois revolutions, you know, um, even the Haitian revolution are rooted in like these profound senses of individual autonomy, right? But it's, relative to the situation out of which that autonomy is able to assert itself. Yeah. So in that sense, I think there's something there's something interesting there that this like pop psychology book that might just be a tool for like re-entrenchment of servitude in other conditions actually serves here as like a tool for liberation. Dude, ex- I was ex- I exactly had the same reaction. I felt so attacked by that part of the plot <laughs> because I, I could be a little bit that way about, about self-help stuff. And I thought they perfectly um, manifested exactly what you said, where in, in different conditions, this sort of like kind of superficial autonomy boosting um, self-help stuff is actually really powerful <laughs> in the context of somebody who's a, a mental child and who has no autonomy. Um, that's like really liberating I was like, oh man. Yeah. And really, I mean, I say mental child, but like we're all kind of mental children, right? That's not meant to be like a, <laughs> it's not meant to be like disparaging remark or anything about people who read self-help books. Like there's actually something really empowering about that in the right context. And in a different context, it can be stifling and it can be like re, like re-entrenching oppressive power structures for sure. Like all that stuff still is the case. But I loved that that this self-help book became their new Testament. And they were, Adam Scott was reading it and getting these profound feelings. Like you're reading the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount or something, right? Like that was so (laughs) well done. I loved it. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's funny too, because it it depends on the case, right? So you got to look at the circumstance. Like, I don't think that I would advocate for somebody, like, I'm not a big fan of, of like, pushing for self-assertion and pushing for being like, like, do you kind of mentality. I kind of like, I find that kind of icky, but I find it icky in a world where it's just so rampant and it manifests as, um, as taking part within this radical proliferation of self-indulgent pursuits in like the utility sense, right. That we talk about all the time. Like one of the worst aspects of the kind of capitalist rationality, right? However, if there is somebody that has been abused or stifled or held back to such a point where they have a difficult time with self-assertion, then I'm like, you know what? Maybe maybe one of the practices that would be good for that person in that situation is being like, yeah, I'm going to fucking find my fucking inner dick. I'm going to find my <laughs> inner fucking king, you know? Like, I don't think that's a bad thing in those circumstances to meet certain challenges that might be facing that particular context. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And like you, like, I don't think that also like we should just have like a general maxim that's like, yeah, you should just uh, be silent and meek. But if you're somebody who is very prone to self-indulgence and hubris, then I'm like, Hey, maybe you should practice a little bit of just shutting the fuck up and being meek and humble and (laughs) being, being silent, you know? So again, it's, it's, it's kind of like a navigation or a negotiation. Yeah, it's a super important point about just ethics in generally broadly construed being really contextual. <laughs> and yeah. that we, if we're, yeah, yeah. if we're not being contextual, then we're probably missing something really important and nuanced. 
Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so was there another question? Yeah, last thing. Yeah. Uh, so you know how the, the, the wellness counselor, um, has these like sessions with the innies and comforts yep. them and consoles them by telling them about their outies. Like your Audi yes. loves to go to parties. Your Audi has mm-hmm. great taste in music. Your Audi is mm-hmm. a gentle and giving lover and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. w- what do you think that the wellness counselor would say to your any about your Audi to comfort them? <laughs> oh God. Um, so my any is, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Your Audi loves Top Gun. Uh, <laughs> they wouldn't know what Top Gun is. Your, <laughs> yeah. Your, yeah. Well, yeah, that's one of the things I did wonder is like, so even with like, um, and, and he also doesn't know what being a gentle and, and kind lover is, right? So they would say stuff like that. Extre- and I'd be like, well, they don't understand they don't what that means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it'd be like, your, your Audi loves oat cappuccinos um <laughs> your audi your audi enjoys pop punk music from the early 2000s <laughs> um god what are you yeah your audi hosts your several audi. successful podcasts <laughs> yeah because it was always like really really encouraging like like over over inflating like your audi is a published author <laughs> <laughs> your Audi has been in many, many films and TV shows. <laughs> they don't mention yeah, how many of them are body horror films, though. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Some of them are like body horror films that like seven people have seen in a festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would yours be? Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> your Audi has a meticulously detailed music collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, what it'd else. be more like. <laughs> Your Audi your, gets, gets your, excellent student evaluations. <laughs> yeah, your no, yeah, you got to even go bigger than that. It's like your Audi is beloved on campus. <laughs> your Audi is a local hero. Yeah, something like that. Your Audi is in the 99th percentile of not making grammatical mistakes in texts. <laughs> that would comfort uh, me probably a lot, knowing my any. Your Audi frequents really important and impactful music events. <laughs> uh, this would be fun. So, yeah, I want listeners out there. Oh, to- oh, your your Audi uh, was an entrepreneur. Oh, fuck that shit, man. That's just a lie. <laughs> but that's, I mean, you got to put the this, this shiny veneer over it. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, yeah, I want listeners out there to add us and tell us what your, what the wellness counselor would tell your any about your Audi. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one thing I did want to say, so in terms of like the design and stuff like that, did you notice, and I tweeted about this, the map that is drawn is like a Basquiat. Which map? So remember, you know, the map that, um, what's the guy's name? The old guy, the, not the old guy, the other guy that like gets free or whatever that he draws the map. It's a fucking Basquiat, not an actual Basquiat, but it's like drawn in the style of Basquiat. Give it a Google real quick and look at it. Like, like, like not even subtly. So, oh yeah. The map of the office that they make. Yeah interesting i hadn't put that together it is what do you think what do you think that means i don't know 
I don't know. I was trying to I was trying to think about it and I I couldn't come up with an answer. I mean, I know that Basquiat was critical of, you know, society and uh, certain kind of like ills and whatnot that the film is also kind of critiquing from a socioeconomic, sociopolitical perspective. But yeah, I don't know. I wondered why the choice was that. But I mean, it's like like not subtle at all. You know, like even the little figures that are drawn on it, there's the little crown um, the colors, like it's very clearly a Basquiat. Yeah, there's, oh, there's a whole like Inspired. Reddit deep dive about this. Oh, I bet there I'll is. I'll have to read more about it. Yeah. Mm. That's one bummer with not watching the show when it was actually airing as I didn't get to Reddit deep dive. It also wasn't a time of the year where that was possible anyway, but it can be fun to do that. Yeah, and this is a show that's like perfect for Reddit deep dives, you know? It's like designed for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess... I got so burned by Lost. I don't think I've ever done that again. You know? Oh, did you go through the Reddits on that? I just remember when Lost was on and there was all this talk. I don't think there, there wasn't, we didn't have like social media then, right? Um, but there was just so much no. water cooler talk and stuff at school where people talk about what the smoke monster means and why are these people named after philosophers and shit like that. Um, yeah, maybe that's the thing you do. When do we you're ever find out the answer? You give up on eventually. Do you, wait, you do or you don't? Do Reddit deep dives? No, no, no. Like, do you find out the answers in Lost? Like, why they're all named after philosophers and philosophers and shit? That part, no. I think those were just illusions that probably didn't actually mean anything. Um, but a lot of the plot oh, devices okay. and stuff, they just left completely hanging. Um, which doesn't is, it turn out, like, spoilers for a TV show that's fucking 15 years old, doesn't it turn out that they're all just dead? You know, it's like it, the end doesn't even tell you. Like, that's one of the hypotheses is that they were all dead. Um, but it's not even clear. Which is like fine. I, I don't. I don't like the whole like if it's sci-fi and it has mystery in it, then it has to all be neatly materialistically explained. Like that's not necessarily good storytelling. Oh, okay. But also, yeah, having nothing to say because you threw up a bunch of shit in the beginning and then didn't know what you were going to do isn't also isn't good storytelling. <laughs> yeah, but that's also just the problem with that's just the problem with network television. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's not like they have a clearly defined beginning and end they're like hey we got a cool premise and maybe some ideas i mean maybe they had the ending already already kind of decided but then it's difficult after like fucking seven eight nine ten eleven whatever how many seasons it is to to make it like a nice neat bookended project you know yeah which is which is why like the the plot shouldn't be the best part of your your your, like your work right Uh, tv or movie or otherwise right it, the plot is important, but it that's especially in TV series. It can't just be that, right? Because there's too many things that are going to affect um, the plot for that to be like the main thing that matters. Which is like we've talked about Severance this whole time and barely talked about the plot, even though the plot's good. And there's a cool like mystery element to it, and there's that the finale was was so good. It was like a heist Great. film. Um, yeah, where the Indies are all trying to uh, make themselves known. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. Mm. The only shitty thing about binge worthy content now is that you have to wait so much longer for the new one to come out, right? Like back in the day when you were just watching something along with television, by the time you got to episode 20 or 13 or whatever it is, you probably only had to wait like seven months for it to start up again, you know, maybe six months. But now you got to wait a literal calendar year or more. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fucking Atlanta. How many years was it between the like third, three years? Yeah, the second and third season. Like fucking was it three years or two years? It felt yeah, like seven I think years. three years. Yeah, it's Jesus. regular now that yeah. a lot of these shows are taking um, a year and a half to two years off before coming back. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're filming them. It's like they're movies now, you know, and so they 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 do have big budgets and they do take a lot of time and they are more meticulously planned. So maybe that's part of the reason why, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of appreciate it. Like it's 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 ending up with better quality, I feel like, and more production value. Right. And it's probably what the creators want. And so they're giving more leeway to the creators, which is good. And it's like an event, you know, like the a really good show comes back and you watch it for a few weeks or maybe you wait till it's over and you watch it in a few days. And it's like this adventure experience. It'd be cooler if we could all mm-hmm. have it together because that's really interesting to you know, mm-hmm. go back and forth and talk with people and have that kind of monocultural experience. Um, but, you know, not everything has to be absolutely ideal like that that is true that is true yeah all right well sick you think we're talking um, enough about severance yeah, def- what's that oh, i wanted to, one last thing i wanted to ask you okay yeah this, this fits with like your hypothesis about the uh, reverse severance where you sever only like raving experiences right <laughs> would you sever podcast austin oh Poor guy. Poor um, guy. <laughs> so what? what is he just literally on a loop, just fucking podcast in po- all the time? Yeah, just his whole life is podcasting. How does he have ideas? <laughs> They're only from past podcasts. Jeez, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would start eating itself. Yeah. Makes all yeah, the same jokes, yeah. all the same allusions to films. You know, it's almost like I wonder if he'd be like an AI, you know, how he like he just becomes like self-learning, but only based on the algorithm that kind of already coded him. So then he just but he starts learning because he's got different guests, right? That come yeah, on. Yeah. But yeah. And so then he becomes just like more and more conscious over time. But like movie podcasts, Austin, Severed Austin would know only about the things he has said about the movies, not the movies themselves, because he never has time to watch movies. He's podcasting. That's right. And what other people have told him about the movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's all he has. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of movies because it's it dominates 90 percent of his experience. Right. (laughs) But he only knows about (laughs) talk about movies. But does does Audi Austin watch movies and then he had like there's like a nascent like, like, um, a, a nascent apprehension of those memory, like of those experiences in any podcast, movie podcast, Austin. I don't think so. I think he, I think, um, severed post podcast Austin has like propositional memory about movies. Like he knows that, uh, like Francis Ford Coppola and the Godfather, right. But he's never seen the Godfather. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> And then, and then all the guests are, they're all innies too, right? Oh man, that, that's just, that's too complicated for me to think about. <laughs> it does okay. feel like when you get well, because, chatbots talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because then that, that's the question, right? Is, is, is you can have all kinds of crazy complex combinations of data that's being shared. Um, but, but there, there's no novelty in the system, right? Eventually. But there's still like a large field of data to be processed 
because there's different guests and things like that that can get dropped into to little innies uh, ecosystem. Yeah, I, I think it would be more. I think it would be really creative because I think you'd have somebody whose knowledge base about movies is greater as a ratio than anybody who's ever existed, right? But has never seen mm. a movie before. That would be pretty interesting. That would be super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. What would, who, who would your any be? Would it be, would it be, uh, professor Polidori any? No, no. Uh, I think that my any would be like, if I was being a, a kind, any kind to my any, I'd make like basketball any Troy. Oh, like his entire life oh, is going to the park and, and shooting. But hoops. then, Oh, so he'd play. Yeah. Just go shoot hoops. I wouldn't want that because that's a really meditative experience for me, but yeah, that would be the thing that would be like the most interesting. Like what's, what's his life like when every, every day or every moment of his existence He's like shooting jumpers, but you know how sad it is. He never gets to watch basketball. So he doesn't get to have that, that fantasy that we all draw from. That's like, Oh, Kobe in the corner. You know, <laughs> I think he'd still do that. He just wouldn't know who Kobe is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really sad. <laughs> so it's like a contentless fantasy. Yeah. That's pretty so it's weird. Just pure. It's just like pure form. <laughs> Wow. That's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that the future yeah, seasons of Severance... And then that's sad for your Audi, too. Yeah, it would be very sad for my Audi, but that would be the most the most interesting version of that. I, I do or hope how that cool Severance be, plays though, with these ideas eventually. But just imagine how fucking in shape you would be and how good you would be, and then your Audi like would somehow be at an event, and they'd be like, hey, man, you want to shoot? And you'd be like, oh, my God, I haven't played him forever. And then and you're, you're fucking, fucking Steph Curry. wreck him. <laughs> That, yeah, that's if my any wanted to shoot for like two hours a day or whatever. You know what? I just figured it out. I know what I, I want my any to three hours a day just be fucking insane fitness guy. And then I don't Oh my God, I, I, I've changed my mind. It is totally ethical and I choose it. That's what I want. My any, my any is just going to exercise for three hours a day. And is going to be just fucking shredded. And then my Audi doesn't have to worry about doing it. Dude. And for, I can give up those three hours of, of experience. I'm in. I'm 100% in. Can you imagine how much of a douche someone who 100% of their experience is just working out <laughs> would be? Like they only know like full adrenaline workout mode. That's that's their entire yeah. existence. That would be like the worst human being on the planet. Well, okay, so he he's 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 full on workout mode, but also does yoga oh, and okay. um, you know like Pilates and stretches and massages. But he just his whole existence is just fitness. That's it. Yeah, I, that would still I think lead to some some psychological abnormalities. But some interesting. Whatever, ones. it's worth it. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm into it, man. I a hundred percent. I would do it. I wonder, see, that's something they could explore because as this show progresses, as the procedure becomes more prevalent, like people are going to use it in different ways. As we already see, there's the woman who uses it because she doesn't want to go through the pain of childbirth. And so there are going to be different people who use it in different ways. So I wonder if they would, if you can like choose, I want my any, the problem is, is the reason that it works in the corporation is you have this entire infrastructure that protects the system. 
Whereas I wonder how you would do it if it was just like, how do they trigger for the woman who doesn't want to go through childbirth? Like, what is she, the senator's wife? Like, how do they trigger it to turn on and then turn off? Is it just when she goes to that that like campsite, it turns on somehow. Like that's that's the weird thing. Like that's what I don't understand. Yeah, it has to be triggered by like a, a timer or like a spatial locator, right? And then you have to have people though that are in on it around you that facilitate it, right? Whereas like, how would you do that? Like I wouldn't just be able to live my life now, living in my apartment with my partner, and then I wake up and then uh, at fucking six o'clock in the morning from six to nine in the morning, it's gym time. And then, so like, I, I just like, I just wake up at like nine or something like that. Or I just like, what is it? I walk through the door at nine or something like it would have to be something like that. You know, well, you just pull up the severance app on your phone and you press the button and set the timer for three hours. Right. Yeah. Or do I have to drive to the area where like the gym is Quit. where it's yeah. like a gym? Yeah. There'd be, a fail be something safe. like that. And then yeah. I, What's that? There'd be a failsafe. So if, if you if you're any left the gym, it would trigger back into into out of you. Yeah, that's what it'd have to be. It'd have to be a gym. Oh, I'm told I'm still I'm down. How cool would that be if that was the future of gyms? You just fucking you park your car, you walk in with a little smoothie in your hand, a tasty smoothie, so you get the good part of it. And then as soon as you walk in, you're walking back out. And you're like, oh, I feel fucking strong. Okay. And then it's like, I'm good. And you're all showered up and you're stretched and you're, I'm, I'm fucking in. Wait, would you, would you save half your smoothie for your any though? Well, uh, my presumption is, is that the, there, maybe the responsibility of the Audi is to, to provide nutrients. But my presumption was, is that the any would also like load up on protein and you know, look, you need to take some other stuff too, you know, some, you know, some fucking some Mexican supplements, maybe. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And what you don't know, I don't know, you can't be liable for. That's exactly right. I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know what's going on in there. You know, you just you just do your responsibility, which is to make me strong and look <laughs> sexy and feel good, and then I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> oh man! But then I'd probably be jealous. I'd be like, man, that any just gets to fucking work out all the time. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, you know? man. There's something about those experiences that are. Part of what feels good is going through the negative, right? Tearing with the negative. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I know. All right. Yeah, I'm in. Sign me up. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's about All coverage right, let's for move towards close, yeah? yeah. 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 All right. Before we get out of here, though, we got to talk pretty quick about the Sticky Leaves segment of the podcast. That's where one of us talks about whatever it is that's providing us meaning in a potentially meaningless world. So, Austin, a lot of people are hopeless nowadays, but what's providing yeah. you some hopefulness? Well, so like I like I said, I've just been in like fucking insane nerd mode. So literally all I'm doing is like writing and going through my old notes and writing and then trying to spend the little bits of time that I'm able to with my partner. And, um, we've like watched some things and, and whatnot. One of the things that we've watched, so I, so my life has not been like eventful in a lot of ways, but, um, I have been able to catch up on a couple of TV shows that, um, well, one, I just, I've watched the new stranger things, which I'm a little disappointed in so far, oh, to bummer. be honest. It's kind of, have you been watching it? No, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'll let, I, I won't say too much, but like, I mean, I'm still into it and I want to see how it all closes up. And, you know, it's still got a lot of the the charm, but I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like I, I've got some, I got some things we could talk about maybe at a later date. This isn't a shitty minute, so I, I you know, I don't want to be bringing the, the moment down. Um, but one of the cool things that I've finally caught up with that I've never seen before, but I've heard a kajillion people talk about it is Veep. I'd never seen Veep before. <laughs> and... Have you watched Veep? Oh, yeah. I watched it all. Yeah. Okay. And I'd never watched it before. And I love it. I think it's fucking fantastic. And I don't know why it took me so goddamn... You know, I know why it took me so long. It's because it was on HBO. And I just didn't watch stuff on HBO before that much. And so I think that's why it took me so long. And then I finally caught up with it. And it's freaking fantastic. I love it. And so check this out. So I'm watching the first episode. And I'm like, man, this just feels like in the loop or the thick of it, right? Like Armando uh, Iannucci. Armando yeah. Iannucci. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, man, this just feels so much like those fucking, that, that movie and, and that show. And then I didn't know that it was Armando Iannucci. And then the fucking credit comes up that he was the creator. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, that makes sense. And um, it was kind of a, a fun, one of those fun experiences. But I think it's fantastic. And in a weird way. I know that it's a fictional show, but I almost feel like it's more real than politics. And what I mean by that <laughs> is I feel like the fantasy and the the kind of like overinflated rhetoric, satire, etc. is more real than the polished spin we get from mainstream media about what politics is really like, quote unquote, right? So we think, you know, the only things we really know is you can read about political experiences, you can read about presidencies, you can read about backroom deals, you can read about like, I don't know, uh, legal debates and things like that in the courts. But um, we only ever get like these tiny little snippets of it. And then where we get most of our news from about politics is from like the, the manicured images that are presented to us from the kind of propaganda machines, right? That are always biased to try to slant the story in a particular way. And I feel like that when you get a more like a larger holistic lens, even though it's totally fictitious, it kind of feels almost more real, if that makes any sense at all. And I I, I don't know how to think through it, but there's like this interesting paradox that I experienced. And anyway, I love it. But does that make sense? What I'm trying to get at? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, like overly exaggerated, hyperbolic, cynical satire in a context where everything is so bad faith and and manicured, mm. even though mm. it's exaggerating. And so, so it's in that sense, not true and fictional. It, it does like punch a hole in truth in a certain way. It's like the yeah. common phrase. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love I loved Veep, love Yanucci stuff. And I, I can't remember who said it. I think it was like some Capitol Hill staffer or something on Twitter or maybe. Who said that? Like, what was the the Kevin Spacey show that was on Netflix? Uh, uh, fucking House of Cards. Yeah, House of Cards. That people on Capitol Hill, uh, like politicians, love House of Cards but hate Veep, and that was like perfect because they they wish they were they were evil and conniving and genius uh, uh, rather than being incompetent buffoons, (laughs) which they are. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Like better to be evil, yeah. but a genius than be an incompetent buffoon. Well, then that makes me feel like then Veep is probably fucking just a documentary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's so great. I, I hadn't heard that anecdote, but I love it. 
Yeah. But I mean, she fucking Julia Louis Dreyfus is she's so fucking good. She's man. so good. My, my God. <laughs> so good. And the fact that fucking Anna Klumsky, like I hadn't seen her since My Girl. And I know she's done work, but I just hadn't seen it. And like that, I was like, oh, yeah, I, rest in peace, Macaulay Culkin. Stay away from the bees, bro. We're <laughs> yeah. sad. Uh, fucking Jonah. Was, Jonah um, is just chef's kiss. Oh, Jonah is so character, good. Man. Yeah. So, so he he is in um, fucking Station Eleven. Station Eleven, yeah. That's and the problem. I though, I couldn't. Was. I couldn't unsee Jonah when he had that. that okay. Part. <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is so funny because they're very different characters. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but no, my partner, she was like, "Oh yeah, he's from Veep," and I was like, "Oh, I've never seen Veep," so um, so I didn't have that that clouded experience. But yeah, 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 yeah. So. Yeah, but it's great, man. So I would just recommend for people out there if you are interested in it. It's so watchable. The episodes are a half hour, so they're like, what, 20, 24 minutes or something like that? 23 minutes, mm-hmm. 22 minutes. So it just goes so quick, and they're so great. And um, I'm in season three. I mean, like, I don't know if I want to say what happens because it is actually kind of interesting. Once you get to season three, season four, you're like, oh, shit, I didn't expect that, so I don't want to say too much. But that's where I'm at, you know, where – um a big a big shakeup has happened happened in the White House. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I, um, I will say I'm interested how it's aged uh, in like a post six post twenty sixteen world. You know. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I I I only watched it from a post twenty sixteen age, so I wouldn't even have that experience of what it's like in a pre twenty six like to watch it in a pre twenty sixteen. Like I'm watching it from the post twenty sixteen perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah, that has to be a totally unique way of experiencing it yeah interesting yeah so but i would say go check it out it's fucking great i love it it's it's hilarious and also terrifying at the same time (laughs) so (laughs) all right sick um well thank you so much for tuning in everybody uh remember you can follow us on twitter owls underscore at underscore dawn you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Go to Mubi and check out their goodies. Uh, you get that free 30-day trial. I Honestly, I couldn't recommend it enough. It's fucking best streaming service that's out there. Um, so Mubi.com slash owls at dawn, M-U-B-I.com slash owls at dawn. And I think that's pretty much it. Remember that we'll be back for our patron chosen topic next week about whether it's possible to be an ethical CEO slash bougie class traitor. And I've got some germinal ideas and i'm excited to talk about that with troy so yeah i think that's pretty much everything man unless there's anything that i've left out uh just one thing i can think of dude what's that that's the dog